For those of you who are visiting us here this morning, we are continuing our series through the book of Galatians. We're up to Galatians chapter 2, going from verses 6. But let me tell you a story. Um, Last week I shared with you about uh, Helensburg Baptist Church and that I'd be back there in a couple of weeks' time uh, to preach at that church, a church that we had pastored 17 years ago. Um, after we left Helensburg, we went to California. We left Australia and moved to Northern California, where we planted a church through Baptist Churches of the West in Sacramento. And then from there, we moved across country to this place called Herndon in Virginia. And there it is there, just to give you an idea of where Herndon is in the northeast of the U.S. It's right in the, um, what they call the Baltimore-Washington metro area. And just to give you an idea of size and Washington, downtown Washington, D.C. to downtown Baltimore is 60 kilometers. That's the distance from downtown Wellington to Waikanae. And in that uh, bubble, that uh, Baltimore, Washington metro area, which includes northern Virginia and, and that southern part of Maryland, there are 10 million people. So imagine between Wellington and Waikanae, including the the Hutt Valley, squeezing in double the population of New Zealand. Imagine the traffic. Um, That was it. And and Virginia, Northern Virginia, uh, you see that river, that blue line that kind of wiggles around, that divides Virginia from the state of Maryland. And even though the Mason-Dixon line's a little bit further north, that really is the division between the north and the south. Maryland, the state, was part of the north. Virginia was part of the south. And we're in a place called Herndon in the county of Fairfax. There were two main counties there, Arlington and Fairfax. Fairfax alone had 1.1 million people. Just to give you an idea, almost the population of Auckland in the Fairfax County. Herndon itself, little town, well, not little, there's nothing little about anything over there, but... um, comparatively speaking. McLean, uh, if you could see that just to the right, one of the largest churches in the US, McLean Bible Church, is there. Something like 16,000, 17,000 people attend there on a Sunday. Um, So there are some large churches in the region. We had this... I I ended up researching it because I didn't believe them when they told me, but they, they, they say that they are the most northern Southern Baptist church. Actually, there's a couple more, but they're, because they're smaller, and we were, a, well, by the time we got there, it wasn't, but it was a, it was a large church for some time. Um, now, when I got there, um, I've shared you this story. This is what it looks like. I mean, it's beautiful. The thing about Washington, D.C. is you really do get four seasons, right? It's like stinking hot in the summertime, freezing cold in the winter, and beautiful fall colors in the, in the autumn and spring. Um, it's quite a lovely place to be there. Um, now, when I arrived, um, pastor, uh, the previous senior pastor, had um, got up one Sunday, preached a sermon, and then at the end of the sermon said, by the way, this is my last day working for this church, I'm leaving. And Monday morning, packed his stuff and was gone. No one knew it was coming, including the associate pastor that had only been hired literally months beforehand. And so the church was just kind of shocked by this. And so they turned to the associate pastor, a guy named William, and said, William, can you lead us while we figure out what to do? 
Um, so after a few months, they decided, you know, William took over as senior pastor, and his first hire uh, was an associate pastor. And within six months, that person who was married ran off with another person who was married in the church. So poor old William was thinking, what am I doing here? So the next person they hired, or they were looking to hire, was me. And poor old William just wanted to make sure that I was the right person. So when I gave him my five references, he asked from each of my references an additional five, which I'm not sure is legal today, privacy-wise, but I didn't care. He could call up anyone he wanted. And he ended up calling about 30 or 40 different people just to make sure he was getting you know, a person who could really come in and help out. Now, in Southern Baptist churches, not all of them, but, but some have this tradition that you've got the search committee uh, that, that approves the pastor's call, um, but then that goes to the church. And kind of like us, we then vote on it, but there, you don't just get voted on, you get interviewed by the congregation. <laughs> uh, you imagine you walk into a job uh, anywhere and you get interviewed by all the employees. <laughs> um, now, it, the, the auditorium at Southview would have been about the same as this. We, I think we had a capacity of about 375, but there were only 90 people at that point in the church. So imagine half the numbers that we have here at the moment. That's how big an empty space it felt like. But on the stage, it felt very small. <laughs> And people for about an hour, an hour and a half kept hitting me with questions about everything. There were those who were more theologically inclined, those who were more socially inclined, those who wanted to know more personal things, and they just kept throwing questions and questions. And I responded by telling them, by using a word that I use often, and that was just get ready for change. You know, we, we need to be considering change. And finally, one guy caught up on this and he said, Rob, what, what do you mean by change? What, what are you thinking about when you say change? And so I said, just look around. This place is not gonna, not gonna be the same. It's gonna look completely different. And within three years, it did. You know, aesthetically, it was completely different. Aesthetically, it changed completely. We had, uh, we were known as Southview Baptist Church. Within three years, we changed the name to Southview Community Church. Our logo was blue. By the time we got to three years, our logo was green and completely different. It just changed. And he got really comfortable at that point. He goes, oh, you're just talking about aesthetical changes. And I said, there's nothing aesthetical about change. This is one thing that we struggle with as Christians and churchgoers. We're all good with the concept of change. And it might be just aesthetics, but actually, it changes everything in you. It's not the same place that you walk into. It's not the same look, not the same feel. And I said to this guy, I said, you might think it's just aesthetics, but actually, it shakes your very core. It puts you out of place. And I told him, I said, of the 90 people here, more than half of you won't be here in three years' time. And look, from 90 people, within three years, we had grown to a point where we were starting a second service because it was too full in the main service. And I remember uh, in 2014, four years after I'd left 
uh, Southview and moved here to a power at the time. I came back to preach at their two services. And in the first early morning service, I sat there and I was preaching to a lot of people I did not know. In fact, William had to introduce me as an ex-pastor in four years. And it wasn't a large congregation uh, in that earlier service. And so I, you know, I was just like, oh, okay, maybe that's just the way it is. The second service was packed. And I, <laughs> I'm looking around for faces I knew. And I couldn't. And there were several families that I knew that Monica and I are still to this day very close with who aren't part of that church anymore. And I remember going to dinner with them. I said, so why did you leave? What, what made you leave? Oh, it's not the same place it was when we first came. I'm, I'm sorry, but the pastor left screaming. <laughs> the place was down to 90. It was struggling. What was it that you liked about that? Oh, I don't know, Rob. It was the feel. And I said, it was a change. You know, deep down, it's the change. Because when it comes to us as human beings, we gravitate to things that are comfortable for us. And even though that might be damaging and hurtful and not a safe place or the right place to be, we'll hold on to it because we struggle with what might come after that. Would it be worse? Would it be better? No, this is, I know this. I'll stick with it. It's the problem of identity. And, and in Christianity, we have this. They call it the penguin impulse. That we all want to be in a place where we can all look alike and be alike. We gravitate to the things that are comfortable for us, that we can kind of look at everyone and say we're all together in this, we all kind of look alike and do the right things. I mean, I remember going into a Pentecostal church and seeing everybody speaking in tongues. And I'm like, there's a good amount of people in this place that are speaking in tongues only because other people are doing it. Because the Bible says not everybody can do it, but how is it that everyone here is doing it? Or you go into a, a good old conservative church, everyone's dressed the same. Because we gravitate, we want to be accepted, we want to conform. And now that I'm following this new faith, or the faith of my parents, I must be like them or like those around me. It's the age-old question that we struggle with. Conformity versus unity. It's a difficult thing for churches. It's a difficult thing for humans. Because we feel that unity and conformity are the same thing. When actually they're not. Paul's struggling with this. The Galatians, which is really interesting. I mean, I use the title of, of the series called Freedom Through Christ. Classic title for the book of Galatians. But there is freedom because what he's dealing with right now is people conforming and he calls it slavery. We saw last week the opening verses of chapter 2 how angry Paul was, so much so that his words just didn't seem to fit right. And you know, when, when people are angry and all the words just keep tumbling out and, you, and you're just like, hey, calm down, just, just think through your words for a moment. Paul's that angry that he's dealing with this issue of conformity. I've told you guys, you don't need to get circumcised, which I think would be a hallelujah, right? 
No, 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 you don't have to be. But the Jews have a point. Hey, we've been around for a few thousand years. We've got the Bible, because back then they didn't have this New Testament Bible thing. They had the Scriptures, which was the Old Testament, and a few letters floating about. And they're saying, hey, this is our Bible. And look what it says in here, you've got to do this, this and this. So you need to conform. All these new people, in fact, the whole Gentile thing was a real problem. I, I laugh, sometimes pastors tell me, we really need to get back to the early church. Man, they had a lot of division back in the early church. They were really struggling in the early church. the same way we struggle today. Let's not rose-colour it. Go to Acts chapter 15. They have to have a big conference to figure this out. And poor old Paul's telling him, look, the Gentiles don't need to do that. Who are these Gentiles? We're the chosen people. Who are we bringing in? Since when does this happen? What's, what's going on here? Can you imagine some of the issues we face today with the same kind of mentality? They're saying, well, well, hang on a sec. Are we changing everything now? What, what's changed? And Paul's saying, Jesus, Jesus, we have, we have the Messiah. And he's angry. He's angry because he feels as though he's explained this to them and he has to explain it to them again. Take a look at the passage from verse 6 onwards. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever uh, they were makes no difference to me. I mean, those are fighting words. You know, Peter, James, you know, I'm sure they hang around with Jesus. They mean nothing to me. I don't care what names you throw out. (laughs) <laughs> think about that imagine the guys were, was like what what's he saying about Peter and John he goes whatever they were makes no difference to me God does not show favoritism whew them fighting words they added nothing to my message oh Paul calm down take a breather do you really want to send that email in those days, he actually had time to mail it. <laughs> you imagine about two weeks later, he's thinking, oh, I shouldn't have written that. Try to catch up with that guy to get that letter back. Yeah, that won't happen. God does not show you. Yeah, they, he's talking about the apostles, the leaders at the church. These are the guys who walked with Jesus, right? They me, had nothing to my message. I don't care who they are. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as the apostle to the Gentiles. James, Stephas, Peter, and John, those esteemed pillars. Now he's just kind of taking, maybe I've been a bit too hard. Let me, let me just kind of re here he's being politically correct those pillars you know those guys they really are important even though I just said they're not but they are important and they gave Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me they agreed and they to the circumcised all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing I'd been eager to do all along just mull on those words for a moment. They're tough words. We don't take it personally because it's not written to us. 
But I imagine some of those Galatians would have been like, ooh, has Peter read this? Do the apostles know what he's writing? Are they cool with this? I imagine in a congregation as as who was the senior sitting up there reading this out, there'll be a few people going, we need to send that to Peter because this is not cool. (laughs) Can you imagine how that would work today? Um, But there's a challenge here. And Paul's anger is around this identity issue that we take it for granted for who we are and what we have. And then we force that then on others. And actually, we're just making a burden on others. These Gentiles are coming to know Jesus. They don't need to go through these hoops. They don't need to do all these things that you want them to do. They don't need to be copies of you. That's the grace we have, the the beauty of salvation we have in Jesus Christ. You are enough. Jesus died for you even while you are a sinner. His blood covers everything. Sacrifice is not needed anymore. This is just blowing the church away. But I think for these early believers, a lot of change was happening. A lot was going on. And they were having a hard time coping with change. And so when change comes about, what's the best thing we do? Is we hold on tightly to the things that we know, whether they're right or wrong. We get entrenched in our ways. And then we force others so that we feel more comfortable with what we're doing. Many years ago, I, uh, a few people in the UK and others gathered and they produced this document called the ADAPT Manifesto because they were aware of changes that were happening and what it meant for leadership in general and how they needed to learn this concept of adapting and dealing with change. The line that comes out of the thing is, it's not the strongest that survives, nor the most intelligent, it is the one most adaptable to change. And if you get an email from me, you might see that I've got a little tag on it. It comes straight from the Adaptive Manifesto. It says this, learn, unlearn, relearn, repeat. A couple of years ago, uh, several people had come to me worried about their young people, their their kids, who were beginning to uh, deconstruct their faith. It's a kind of cool word now. But actually, deconstructions happened over the centuries. And it's a point in which you start to question what you believe, especially those who grew up in the church in particular. I didn't grow up in the church, so I I never really... I did encounter some instances where I needed to deconstruct a few things because I came out of a good, strong brethren church, and I've shared those stories with you. But for young people in particular who've grown up in Christian homes all their lives, they've taken some things for granted because they see their parents doing stuff But for them to own it, for them to realize, what is it that I have? They go through this process, which they call deconstruction. Deconstruct what I've learned. I need to then relearn it. And if at some point I need to do that again, I'll do it again. It's a very healthy way of dealing 
with things in your life. For example, kids get confused when 10 years ago we tell them women shouldn't be in leadership and now today it's okay. Hang on a sec, that doesn't make sense. You kept telling me we can't do that. Or if you go back 25 years ago, you don't dance in Baptist churches. We laugh at that today now. We kind of smile. Oh, yeah. But 25 years ago, it was a serious issue. There are all these things that we're told are biblical. We find out they're actually not. Or people that do things and then we find out they weren't for real. Why am I believing this? Why am I following this? What is causing me to, to question this? I've learned. Now I need to unlearn, relearn, repeat. It's change. And we as Christians struggle with it. The world faced sexual revolution in the 60s. In 2020, the church is still struggling with it. Struggling how to respond, struggling how to engage. 60 years and we're still having a hard time with it. The world moves ahead and we can't keep up with it. I talked about McLean Bible Church. Guess what's happening there now? Some members of the church are taking the leadership to court, like to actual court, because of the way the voting went for the eldership. And you think, how did we get to that? Like legal action. Or what they're doing is unbiblical. Well, what do you think you're doing? Like, really, you stop and th- just stop for a moment and think about it. We're so stuck in our ways. We're fearful of change rather than the presenting challenge of how do we deal with it? Which for me is actually quite exciting. South, you struggle with They want to change, but the moment we start, uh, if I go back, I can go back, can't I? What am I saying? <laughs> Let me go back to this photo because it's, it's fascinating. This top left-hand corner, you can see those books that are in the pews? They're not Bibles. They're the Baptist hymnal. I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, these guys are really good on them. You know, they got, no, they're hymnals. In fact, when I left, they gave me a hymnal that was signed by everybody in the church because <laughs> the first thing I did was I got rid of the hymnals and I replaced them with Bibles. And you should have seen people turning and twisting, trying to be angry, but they couldn't. Who took the hymnals away? I did. Why did you do that? I replaced them with Bibles. Uh, uh. Hey, we've got a big screen, you know. The screen came, you know, we can put the words up there. We don't need them in a book. Oh, but, uh. oh I could, you could see it in them. Why are you so attached to this hymnal? What is it that, that really has got you going? There's a whole section in that hymnal on patriotic songs. And here I am, an Aussie Italian, (laughs) on the July 4th weekend, refusing to play these patriotic hymns because God loves all the nations, not just one. Whew, in a Southern Baptist church. It's a miracle I lasted there four years. But these were changes that they really struggled with. And you try to help them all try to help you know the biggest problem we had in Christchurch wasn't the earthquakes it wasn't the it was the change the biggest problem we have with the pandemic it's not the pandemic 
It's the change it causes, the disruption to our lifestyles, the way we do things. These are what just kind of trip us up and then we have a really hard time physically and mentally dealing with this. I remember being in Christchurch and I was with a couple of guys and we stopped it because there's a lot of empty lots in Christchurch after the quakes because they had to pull down a lot of buildings. And one guy just stopped in front of, oh, that's where such and such building was. And he's getting a tear in his eye. And I looked at him, I'm like, you're crying over a building, mate. Oh, you don't understand, Rob, you're new to the place. Yeah, I, I get that. And I don't want to be insensitive to that. But there are far more important things. My heritage is Roman. I can't pine for the Roman Empire. It's gone. It lies in ruins. Who cares? Move on. We love the history, don't get me wrong, and you know how much I love history. Paul's saying, sure, you are the chosen people. Sure, 2,000 years of history and God's church. God has now revealed something new through Jesus Christ. He's reaching all peoples. So get over yourselves. Let's get onto this because there is a harvest ahead of us. There's a harvest and we are spending way too much time worrying about ourselves and all of this. Um, Scott, uh, Scott McKnight and his NOV commentary on, the Gal- on Galatians, I've pulled out a couple of his comments. He says this, all theology expresses itself socially and social factors influence our theology. We've got to be careful that what we stand firm on isn't actually just social standings, social uh, influences, traditions. Sometimes these are the things, like the Baptist hymn all over the Bible, you know, they realized in that moment that why, you know, the question was, why didn't we have Bibles in the pews? Why are the hymnals taking a prominent place there? We don't even use them anymore. But they couldn't move them. That's actually social factors that are influencing the church. What are the social factors that are influencing us today? He goes on to say this, he says... Um, Far too frequently, we take the principles we learn from one passage and then turn those principles into rigid rules that do not always work the way we want. It is better to retain a certain humility about our principles and applications. He's far more diplomatic than Paul is. And when Paul's saying, I don't care who you get this from, I don't care who they are. Scott McKnight's a little bit less in your face about it, but just as poignant. The book of Galatians is all about identity. What does it actually mean to be free in Christ? What, what, what has Christ done for us? Paul is upset because he feels as though the Galatians are taking away are trying to, to, to shackle up those who have been made free in Christ. And he's obviously defensive about it, maybe a little bit in your face about it. But he cares, he loves. That's what it does to us. I think people want to change the church so that we can be happy and safe and comfortable and have it the way we want it to be in our own little 
box. But you see, God's not all about that. He wants to change you for the church. He doesn't want to change the church for you. He wants to change you for his church. I've had good friends, even just recently, come to me and say, hey, Rob, we're moving on. Why? What's going on? Are you okay? Oh, no, no, it's not you. It's not the church. We just, it's not doing this, this, or this for me. I'm not feeling this, this, or this. And, and some of those still haven't found a church right for them. But therein lies the problem. Therein lies a problem. God's not going to change the church to make it better for you. He's going to change you. Change you for his church. And we're too busy trying to change others to make our church more comfortable more safe for us or more in our image so the question I'm going to leave you with this week is this your identity where is it anchored is it anchored in your past is it anchored in your your family is it anchored in in your traditions in the way you do things or is it actually anchored in your savior Jesus Christ And are you truly going to take his word seriously that you are going to die to yourself so that you can follow him, to pick up your cross, to give your life up for him and for his church? That's a big challenge. Take a moment just to think about that. The music team's going to come up. And as they get ready, just take a moment to just reflect, what what are you anchored in? Are you truly anchored in Christ? In the next couple of weeks, we're going to start a new program that I want to challenge you all to be a part of. And part of that is having people around you, accountability partners, that will help you. Because not all the time are we self-aware. Not all the time do I realize when I'm, when I'm on the right side or the wrong side, whether I'm, whatever. But having people around us, key people, that is so, so important for our walk with Jesus. We use the word discipleship, but I'd, I'd rather use the word accountability, which honestly is about the same thing. Someone walking alongside you and you walking alongside them. So while you contemplate on where it is you're anchored. Contemplate on who you can talk to about this. Someone that you can sit down and talk about this. Amen.